I finally arrived at a grungy little storefront with a dinged-up sheet metal crescent moon hanging outside like a shingle. I stepped through the door, into a billow of smoke issuing from a little cauldron, in the hand of a middle-aged white lady with peppermint patty hair and a wolves howling at the moon sweatshirt over a turtleneck. A classic look. I asked her if they needed any help around the shop, and she said, Whatever you're putting out, sister, it's working. You're hired. Welcome back, goblins! I'm your host, Jason, and you're listening to the Esoteric Book Club. Tonight, I'm reviewing Enchantments, A Modern Witch's Guide to Self-Possession, by Maya Spalter. You may remember her name popping up in a previous News Briefs episode. I was so intrigued by her story that I picked up her book. Maya is a lifelong New Yorker and a longtime employee of Enchantments, New York's oldest occult shop. Located in East Village, Enchantments was founded in 1982, and Maya began working there in 2000. This book sums up the sort of things we wish we could explain about modern witchcraft in its many forms, for people who don't have the desire, or opportunity, to hang around the shop all day and listen to us cackle and beat each other with wooden spoons, says Maya. What witches do is look for magic, for divinity, in everything. What's more, We allow ourselves to find it, even in the seemingly mundane. This book is divided into topics by chapter, and then into two parts, the first being witchy implements, and the second part being witchy intentions. As you progress through the book, you will build upon Maya's instruction from previous chapters. She will often have an aside where she says, This may not make much sense right now, but just wait until this later chapter. As a result, you learn in pieces, assembling the practice a bit at a time, like assembling a Lego set. Let's start by looking at Part 1, Chapter 1, Altars. This is Maya's favorite part. She says, I actually have a dream of starting a business called Spalter's Altars, where I go into people's houses and help them assemble altars out of items they already have, or that we could find at a yard sale or dollar store. Creating magic with what is on hand is Maya's forte, it seems. Above all else, she advises that you have to do what feels right to you for your purpose. Specific liturgy of individual practices may require more specific items, but she points out that rule number one in the Witch's Bible, which coincidentally is a real book written by Janet and Stuart Farrar, is do what feels right to you. Spalter goes into a little detail about the items utilized on a Wiccan altar and how they relate to the suits of the tarot. My favorite part is her snarky statement, chalice, a Christian word for a cup. This is part of her brilliant teaching style. Hidden within her irreverence, she is making associations with concepts that people are already familiar with. She's also completely honest with the reader, too. When referring to the debate about which elements suits the swords and wands represented, she says, Eh, I don't use either one on my altar, so arguing the point is purely academic. 
What this demonstrates is that association is the important part of symbolism, and it's very much personal. When she wants to represent water, she uses, you guessed it, water. The object holding it is irrelevant to her. But if you adhere to certain Wiccan associations, the chalice itself represents water. Like she said, it's how you see it that matters. You can even combine the elements in, well, the elements of your altar. What if you had water within a stoneware mug? You would be combining both water and earth. Oftentimes, the air element is represented by incense or scented oils. What if you used a lit, scented candle? With that one object, you're combining both air and fire. Now that we're on a roll, we need to define a few terms. Altars and shrines. Altars, as we've been discussing, are magical workspaces and can also contain a shrine, but this is not necessary. A shrine is a space dedicated to a deity, entity, or concept. In summary, a shrine is dedicated to the non-physical, while the altar tends to be more physically rooted. Why does this delineation matter? Because the last element represented on your altar is spirit, the source of inspiration, influence, and of all magic. This is the role that a shrine often plays on the altar. It represents this intangible concept, the animating life force of the universe. The shrine could be as simple as a photograph or could be elaborate. People around the world create shrines using different techniques. This can range from mementos from ancestors to objects associated with a deity used to entice their attention to the altar. If you have a space dedicated to deities on your shrine, Maya advises you to leave a space for offerings. Not sure what to leave as an offering? Time to get Googling. If you find out your deity likes licorice, you should probably grab some Twizzlers. Yes, this is an actual example in the book. Like I said, she's nothing if not irreverent. Finally, she briefly outlines two other witchy items that are usually found on an altar, though they are not items that she uses herself. The first is a broom, or besom, which is largely ornamental now, but can be used for ritual cleansing, or, if it's small enough, to clean your altar. The cauldron is the other object that you'll often see, but its function has changed a bit over the centuries. Originally, everyone had a cauldron. It was a necessity for daily life. On a modern altar, the cauldron's size has diminished and is often used more like a brazier, a fire-resistant vessel used for burning things in. We now have the base constructed for our workings. What's the next Lego in our set? Legos come in various sizes and shapes, but they also come in different... Colors! Yes, that's right! Chapter 2 is on the use of color in magic. Spalter explains why color is important in spellcraft. Colors are essentially signifiers to consider when building a spell. A lot of magical work is about setting the mood that matches your intention. And, in the context of spellbuilding, Colors are like physical manifestations of a mood. She goes into a bit more detail about color theory, how eyes perceive color, 
and why color affects us, but then has a listing of Roy G. Biv colors and their associations. These associations include planetary correlations, the moods evoked, and other related metaphysical concepts. Every summary I've heard begins with the color red, which is the first color in the visible light spectrum, so most people know its association by now. Even if you haven't, you can probably figure out that it's the color of passion, love, anger, blood, basically all the extremes of human condition. For the purpose of this review, we will instead skip to my favorite color, green. Green is a complex color for magical use. Even Spalter says, there are so many ways of looking at the color green that I'm not sure where to start. Green is the color associated with the heart chakra, so that is the foundation for Spalter's description. The heart often correlates to love and abundance, and when we generally think of abundance, we think of money. This is an overlapping concept, but not exclusively linked. We can have an abundance in different areas of our lives, such as love, friendship, and yes, even money. Apparently, many places use green candles to draw in wealth, even if their currency isn't green. This lends more credence to the idea that green is an association of abundance rather than material goods. It probably taps into something in our primal brains where we associate quantities of greenery with abundance of plants, and therefore an abundance of food. Because, let's be real, our primitive ancestors only had a few primary concerns in their lives, and paramount among these was food. Spalter transitions into this very concept, explaining that green magic is often associated with plants, herbs, and natural elements. To continue my theme of lesser-known colors used in magic, let's take a look at what Maya has to say about the color orange. Orange, and copper, but let's just call it orange for now, is associated with mercury and mercurial magic is associated with language, commerce, and energetic sparks between people that is facilitated through conversation and exchange of information. That means orange is your go-to color for business and opportunity. Where I work, we sell an anointing oil called Road Opener, which is also orange. Its purpose is to remove obstructions and create new metaphysical roads for you to travel. Copper is also associated with orange, not just for the color, but for the creation and formation. What do I mean by that? Copper is a conductive metal, which is why we use it in electrical wiring, which is why also practitioners throughout history have correlated it to the transition from will into energy. Many modern practitioners have copper wire on their wands, which they feel helps translate their will into tangible effects through the use of this tool. Even more interesting is the association of copper with love deities. It is attributed to both Oshun of the Yoruba tradition and with Venus and Cupid, also known as Aphrodite and Eros. It seems strange. Most of us would consider gold to be the associative color or metal for love. But that seems to be a more modern concept 
where we conflate love with an ability to provide for our mate. Thus, an expensive token shows that you are able to generate an equivalent amount of wealth and therefore are able to provide a certain level of economic status. Copper, on the other hand, is used for generating new interests and, if used towards relationships, new partners. Finally, let's look at what she has to say about brown. Brown is the color of earth, with a capital E, and, well, I guess also with a lowercase e. Brown is the color of finality, since all things come from and return to the earth. I suppose that also makes brown a good symbolic color for transition and rebirth. Maya also points out that brown is a good color for justice with a capital J. Not the type you would find in law courts, where the legal system can sometimes deliver the letter of the law, but not the intent. More like the type of justice you would find in the howling wild. Frontier justice. This isn't karma. That can take multiple lives and lifetimes to balance. No, this is the immediate turnaround of punishment befitting the crime. What comes around, goes around. Oddly enough, you can also find calm in the color brown. It is so base and so stable that there is peace to be found in the knowledge that everyone is the same. We all come from the dirt, and eventually we will all return to it. Before this all seems too serious, rest assured, there is a poop joke in this book, so no worries. Maya elaborates on all the colors, including gray, silver, and gold, but I'll leave those for you to research. Besides, colors are nice, but how do you incorporate those colors into your practice? Currently, the answer is what leads us into Chapter 3, Candles. Maya relates that custom-carved candles are the bread and butter of enchantments ever since it opened its doors in 1982. In fact, they are in as much demand now as ever before. That said, what you are receiving in a candle from enchantments is the artistry and experience of the employees. You can get the same effect from one that you make yourself. You just have to have a little know-how and put in the effort. Maya leads the reader through the steps in creating your own magical candle. This is where previous lessons begin to gel together and create tangible effects. Step 1 is to know your intention. This sounds super esoteric, but it's rather simple. Why are you carving this candle? What effect do you want it to have? Be specific. Let's say you're making a money candle. You have several options, but simply saying, I want more money, is a bit too vague. Where do you want this money to come from? Do you want an inheritance? Do you need a new job? Maybe you just want to win the lottery. Why is it so important to be specific? Well, one example is that you can get money after receiving a settlement for an accident. Sure, you get money but you may also be recovering in the hospital for a while. This is a bit of an extreme example, but it illustrates to you why you want to be specific. Remember what I said about colors? 
Most cultures associate green with money. But what if your intention is to get it from a better-paying job? In that instance, you may want to consider an orange candle rather than a green one. See, that's the trick with associations like this. Be specific, because every aspect has purpose and intent behind it. Something as simple as the color of a candle can either enhance or hinder this effect. Step 2 is choosing your candle. The immediate question is, does size matter? In typical fashion, Maya replies, yes, no, well, sometimes. Essentially, it depends on functionality and how much you are willing to put into the spell. Are you willing and able to burn a gigantic seven-day candle? Are you worried about your cats knocking it over when you go to work? Maybe you should consider a smaller candle, or make provisions for it to be extinguished when you're gone and reignited upon your return. Maya even talks about how some people will move their candle into their bathtubs while they're out of the apartment. That way, there's nothing combustible nearby. Choose your candle's color, size, and style, so we can move on to step three, okay? Step three. Choose your symbols. Symbols? We haven't learned anything about symbols yet. It's okay, don't worry. It's pretty straightforward. The idea is to pick a design or a series of designs that represent your intention. These can be as abstract or elaborate as you want. If you're feeling a little extra, you can even attempt a bit of sculpting and physically carve the candle into the shape you want, rather than inscribing a design into it. The choice is totally yours. Step 4 is anointing, or as Maya puts it, that's just a fancy word for greasing it up. What you're doing is using a combination of oils and herbs to provide added intent to the candle. Remember that money drawing candle I use as an example? Let's add some peppermint oil to it. I can't really say why, but the scent of peppermint just screams green to me. And as I mentioned earlier, green is associated with, that's right, money. Don't have any fancy oils available? That's eh, okay. Go ahead and use a small amount of olive oil. Just place a small amount in your palm and massage that into the candle. Make sure to get all the oil into the areas that you just carved. Why? That's for the next part, adding the herbs and other decorations. What herb could be used with a money candle? Well, we already added some peppermint oil, so we need to add something a little bit more complimentary. I would grind some rosemary into a fine powder and add that. You'll notice rather quickly that the powder sticks to all the oil, and that's exactly what we want. As you continue to massage it into the candle, you'll notice that it builds up within the carved recesses. Another decoration that Maya enjoys adding, which is a material I despise, is glitter. It's not necessary, but if you want a candle that is visually appealing, and if that will help you in your spell, go for it. I just personally don't like cleaning up after using glitter, since you continue to find it everywhere for weeks afterwards. On to step five. We're almost done, I swear. This step is preparing the jar. Now, wait a minute. 
no one said it had to be a jar candle. That's true. If the candle you're using is a taper or a chime candle, that's okay. You can do this step with whatever object you are using to hold the candle while it burns. According to Maya, there are a few additives that they use in enchantments in this step. The first is something for drawing in, assuming it's a candle used to bring something to the person. This can be a small layer of iron filings, or even just an old refrigerator magnet. Largely, it's symbolic. So as long as you have something in there to represent this pulling force, you're good. Next is a bit of sweetness to entice the energies. Sometimes, even with the magnet, you need to lure things a bit closer for things to take effect. Enchantments uses honey or molasses, but you can do something as simple as tearing open a sugar packet from the diner and dumping it into the bottom of a jar. It's all about symbolism, remember? The last part sounds pretty cool in all honesty. They light a bit of powdered incense and, while it's still smoldering, dump it into the jar. They then place a plate on top of the jar, cutting off the oxygen supply. This causes the smoke from the incense to billow, but also extinguishes the embers. This bit of heat melts a bit of the sweet stuff in the bottom, allowing it all to blend together and harden when it's done. Finally, just drop in the candle. Step 6. Wait a minute. I thought you said we were done. And we kind of are. The final step is the spiel. This is the same recommendation given to every patron of enchantments who purchases a custom candle. First, before lighting the candle, take a salt bath. This is a ritual of purification that helps remove all the spiritual gunk that builds up on you throughout the day. If you don't have a bath, you can dissolve some salt in warm water and use it as a rinse, pouring it over yourself in the shower. Next, set your intentions for the candle. If you made the candle yourself, this step is easy. You're just reaffirming the reason you made it in the first place. If you purchased a custom candle, you need to basically tell the candle, hey, this is why I had you made, and this is the specific purpose that I have for you. You're giving the candle its mission. You can say this out loud, write it down on a piece of parchment, express it through interpretive dance. It's entirely up to you. Now you may light the candle. Chapter 4 is entitled Plants and Minerals, although think of minerals like salt rather than specific stones, which are covered later. I don't want to go into too much detail since it is largely a list of common herbs used for magical purposes, their correspondences, such as what planets they're associated with, and how to use them. It's not an exhaustive list since there are entire volumes dedicated to this, but Maya presents a good variety of common herbs along with some more specialized plants and resins that you would be able to find at an occult shop or botanica. She also has an aside in this chapter called what do I do with this rock? The obvious answer, and one that most new people don't think of, is to clean it, both physically and metaphysically. If you found the stone yourself, you may only need to run it under some water and perhaps give it a gentle scrub with an old toothbrush. 
if you purchase it online or at a local shop, it's likely passed through several hands in its travels, so you will want to wash it and then clean it thoroughly. What's the difference between washing it and cleaning it? Isn't that what the water and the toothbrush were for? Much like how you take a salt bath before working with your candle magic, you need to remove any spiritual gunk that is built up from other people handling the stone or crystal. There's many ways to do this, ranging from running it under free-flowing spring water, burying the stone in soil, or even smoke cleansing. What is most important is to find out what cleansing process is safest for the stone. Some, like malachite, are toxic and are often coated with a sealant when you purchase them. When you cleanse a stone like this, you want to make sure not to remove the sealant, otherwise you may inadvertently poison yourself later on. Now that it's properly washed and cleaned, you need to charge the crystal. Yeah, I know, this is starting to sound pretty woo, but think of it like this. You are attuning the crystal to yourself. You put in all the effort to begin with a metaphorical blank slate, so now you need to acclimate the stone to your personal environment. I'm also assuming that you aren't just collecting shiny rocks, since you're listening to an esoteric book review. You can charge them in different ways. Some people like to simply imbue them with natural energy, so they place them outside during a full moon. Some people prefer to use direct sunlight. I like to use oils that correspond to the properties of the stone. Just remember that stones are porous, so using things like oils will change the appearance of the stone and will cause the oils to get on your skin as you use the stones later. Then again, that's sometimes the point. But that all goes into the final part of this tutorial. Use it. Yes, that seems to be obvious. But the general question is, how do you use them? Some stones can be used for meditation. Simply holding them in your hands can generate a subtle effect. Some people place them on shocker points on their bodies. Stones can even be used to boost magical effects on your altar. Remember when we made the candle and talked about using different colors and different herbs for specific effects? Stones can be used in much the same way. You could enhance our example of the money candle by placing a stone called adventuring near the candle as it burns. You could even use pyrite, commonly known as fool's gold. Largely, what you're doing is drawing associations between the different correspondences. This is a summary of just the first four out of 12 chapters in this book. Maya continues to elaborate on the planets, the wheel of the year, the benefits and pitfalls of group working, meditation, divination, and a whole slew of other witchy pursuits in the remaining eight chapters. Additionally, at the end of each chapter, she has a list of books that she either referenced directly in the chapter or recommends for further reading about specific topics covered. I personally like this approach to annotating because it's a bit easier to cross-reference than having to flip to the bibliography at the back of a book and hope you can find what you're looking for. What I found impressive is the sheer volume of information that she was able to relay in an entertaining form while still maintaining an economy of words. This book is physically tiny. 
It's only a little over 200 pages, but it delivers a ton of quality information for beginners and experienced practitioners alike. Because of her background working at Enchantments, Maya is able to deliver a more inclusive, holistic approach to witchcraft, drawing elements from various paths and practices. She references classical Greek and Roman concepts as easily as the Mahabharata and Gardnerian witchcraft liturgy, but she blends it into a modern expression that makes the principles easy to grasp. So if any of this intrigues you, grab a copy of Enchantments, A Modern Witch's Guide to Self-Possession by Maya Spalter. Links will be provided in the show notes. This program has no sponsors other than listeners like you. If you'd like to help sponsor the Esoteric Book Club, you can find us on Patreon. There are several different tiers with various rewards, such as voting rights and exclusive articles. Those who contribute at the higher tiers even get a shout-out on episodes. Contributors, such as Samantha Shaver, who is at the elemental level, which earns her a mention on every show. What she doesn't know yet is that there will be a special episode extension sent directly to her inbox, where I will summarize and review the chapter Psychic Friend Networks or Magical Collaboration, content exclusive to the elemental level patrons. Every little bit helps, so even at the lowest tier, you too can become a loyal goblin. Esoteric Book Club can be found on Facebook, Instagram, and at esotericbookclub.org. If you enjoy the show, please like, share, and leave a review. Intro and outro music is courtesy of Sarah Rudy and her band Hello June. Their music can be found at bandcamp.com and at wearehellojune.com. Until next time, remember, stay safe, stay warm, and stay weird. It is time for you extra special weirdos to get your due. Chapter 7, The Psychic Friend Networks, or Magical Collaboration. Most of the stuff in this book can easily be done by yourself.